0: Welcome to Risk Roundup. COVID-19 pandemic has ushered in a new set of complexities to the already changing global order due to the cyberspace. Now, as the first wave of COVID-19 seemed to be leveling in some nations, what is becoming clear is that the world order everyone is used to seems to be collapsing. Now, since the pandemic has pushed the world towards a profound and lasting shift in the relative balance of power, The question is, where is this power struggle taking us? How will it reshape the global order? To discuss COVID-19 impact on the world order, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dr. Maha Hossein Aziz to Risk Roundup. Dr. Aziz, NYU professor, is the author of the book, Future World Order. Welcome, Professor Aziz. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Wonderful, (laughs) Professor Aziz. Congratulations, first of all, on your book, The Future World Order, and the other one you just finished writing. While the new world order of cyberspace is already revolutionizing every aspect of society and has leveled the playing field, the COVID-19 has accelerated the speed of these transformative changes. Where do you see the world going due to the shock of COVID-19? And how is the future shaping? That's a great question. I
1: think, I think it's worth first reflecting on where we were just before COVID-19, and then recognize the effect that this pandemic has had. Uh, I focus, as you know, on global risks. I I have, uh, since 2012, my job has been to teach, research, consult on, and write about uh, the threats to our stability. And uh, uh, I think that uh, it's safe to say that even before the pandemic struck, we were already at quite a sensitive uh, global turning point. And uh, first, I would say that geopolitically, there was uh, clearly a major question hanging over us, which was that uh, we weren't clear who's in charge of the world order, right? It's been clear for a few years, even before President Trump took office, that that, uh, the role of the US as a global policeman or global player, hegemon, whatever you want to call it, was evolving, and uh, uh, it's safe to say that uh, the speculation centered around whether the the world was going to be defined by u s versus China or uh, perhaps the future is simply asian some uh, some articles have talked about how the future is african if you look at, look at population numbers and the the number of working age uh, uh, working uh, age people who will be in that continent so uh, there hasn't been clarity for a while about who's in charge of the world order and and the, the current U.S. government has obviously uh, emphasized a, a new role for uh, for America in the, in the world today. I think that what we need to really focus on in a COVID-19 world is that we've been reminded that the era of U.S.-led multilateralism is frankly over, okay? Okay. Uh, of course, we need to see who wins the u s election that's coming up in November. That could change the dynamic a little bit. but during this covid nineteen pandemic it's it's been clear that we don't have global leadership the g twenty g seven did meet virtually to discuss a unified response to our uh, to this virus and we saw sentiments echoed by the u n and former world leaders, uh, which has been positive to see but We've also seen that the multilateralism in the traditional sense has been severely lacking. And what I feel we we are witnessing is this uh, wave of COVID-19 bilateralism that's that's emerged to fill the leadership void globally. Uh, We've seen that certain states, China, Turkey, South Korea, India, Cuba, have taken a greater role in building bilateral ties with other countries using COVID 9 diplomacy, sending medical supplies, sending doctors at times. And I think uh, it's not yet clear how that dynamic, this wave of COVID 19 bilateral alliances, will truly reshape our world order. And I think that'll be an interesting uh, trend to observe as we hopefully move out of the pandemic going into 2021. And of course, we'll have. Uh, 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 the election results of the U.S. will also be a, a, a noticeable uh, data point for us to make that judgment. I think the only game changer in terms of who's in charge of the world today and how the world order could be evolving could be uh, the vaccine. If one country were to to somehow come up with a vaccine rather soon and uh, share that with the world or sell it cheaply to the world, I think that would be the only a scenario in which we would perhaps be able to redefine the world order, uh, you know, if China were to, were to do that, that could certainly change geopolitics and we would have to uh, reflect further on on who's in charge of the world order. I think what's also interesting to see and has implications for global, global risk, for geopolitical risk and stability is the fact that we've also seen bilateral alliances building between state and non-state actors. So you see, not just um, not just certain governments, but you see private citizens, specifically billionaires, who are directly uh, approaching world leaders with medical support under the guise of COVID-19 diplomacy. People like Jack Ma, Adrian Cheng, Bill Gates, even Elon Musk. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see how the very nature of power and alliances is going to change because of that as well, um, going into. 2021 but the uncertainty is what will add to our risk Um, and I think the question to watch for the question to answer going into 2021 is could COVID-19 diplomacy this unique form of COVID-19 diplomacy reshape our world order and our power structures
0: yes Uh, yes Yes. yes
1: Exactly, or could it be vaccine nationalism? Maybe one country comes up with the vaccine and doesn't want to share it uh, with the rest of the world. I think that could also change the dynamic of how we understand the structure of the international system—multipolar, bipolar, or, or as I said, if, is it is it simply going to be defined by bilateral relationships?
0: Yes, uh, I hear you because, you know, the, like you said, you know, there are many different variables. It is the geopolitics of cyberspace was already shifting the you know dynamics about who is going to lead the world especially in the cyberspace now it's not just the cyberspace now we are you know hit with this pandemic so yes all these complex challenges are there and unfortunately we have witnessed that you know there rather we have witnessed a lack of cooperation between nations and you know failing of leaderships failing of you know many different uh you know variables that we would like to see, failing of institutions and failing of processes, failing of globalization, failing of supply chains. So there are many different variables that we have witnessed. So yes, you know, the who is going to come up with the vaccine? That will certainly help the global community stabilize because then there will be hope. But the vaccine itself will probably not be the solution because of the complex nature of this virus. One vaccine probably may not be, you know, Uh, the solution that we all are, you know, looking forward to. So we will see, you know, in the coming years uh, or coming months, I would say, uh, hopefully it's not years, that, you know, how it is shaping and how this pandemic is, uh, you know, reshaping the world, not only in cyberspace, but, you know, in all the spaces that we have defined so far. But the future of the world order is not preordained. And one thing seems certain that where we go depends heavily not on any nation's ability to survive the fallout, but also to collaborate and cooperate to shape and secure cyberspace. So we are, you know, here cyberspace, it's a wild west of cyberspace. You know, there is nobody in control right now. There are so many complex challenges while, you know, we are seeing cooperation, like you said, between, you know, institutions, between, you know, individuals who are high net worth and who has Uh, the capacity. They are trying to reach out to, you know, many other countries and, you know, on their own capacity. But there are many different variables that comes into play. And looking at the state of the complex challenges emerging from the COVID-19 response and the mostly absent cooperation between nations in all spaces, cyberspace, aquaspace, US space, and space, what can be said about the future world order? Because we are, Talking not only about cyberspace but all these interconnected spaces that we have because of the cyberspace I think the very fact that we won't have clarity
1: on the world order, the structure of the world order, who the leading players players are i think uh, I think that's going to be a problem that will you know hover over us for for some time um, it, we We will just have to wait and see, but I think it's encouraging that there is a bit of dialogue happening about whether there's a need to rethink the G7 or whether there's a need to rethink the UN. I mean, we've had these debates in the past, but more recently here in the UK, uh, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has talked about whether we need a new type of global advisory body a body called the D10, he's he's termed it. And the idea is to have 10 leading democracies as another type of, of advisory body that can Perhaps deal with these more 21st century challenges better than what the existing G7 uh, does. And in my book, I COVID-19 Effect, um, uh, I do talk about whether there is a need for a new G7-like advisory body, but with leaders who are who have been more effective. So, for instance, if you look around the world today, the countries that have happened to deal with the virus better, more effectively, are countries like New Zealand, are countries like. Uh, Germany and Finland and these countries just happen to be uh, countries which have women uh, women leaders and um, and it could be just a coincidence but I think going forward we need to see if we can learn from the experience of countries that have had the leadership to deal with this issue uh, rather than simply relying on old organizations or old bodies that have been there have been around for, for so many years but simply don't reflect The changing nature of of the world today. Uh, So we'll have to wait and see how that how that evolves. But geopolitical risk really anchors around, um, you know, uh, whether or not COVID-19 diplomacy will will reshape uh, what we see in the coming
0: years. And it'll be interesting to observe. Sure, it it is. I mean, a lot of things are changing. And yes, I'm also hearing about all these discussions about redefining the nature of the institutions and the advisory bodies and all that. But my concern is that, you know, if you even if you do, a, you know, G10 or the D10, like democracy, you know, 10 democracies and all that, I think the power is shifting away from the institutions or these you know, government. The mode of governance that we have seen towards, you know, the individuals, because with the, you know, because of the cyberspace, every single individual now has the power. They are a part of discussion in how they want to, you know, uh, see the world, how they want to reshape the world. And as we saw with the Black Lives Matter here, you know, yeah. one single incident, ha- you know, galvanized everyone. Uh, they took to the streets crazy. and they want a change you know that they want the inclusiveness and they want stability so i think you know it's not just the democracies that we are seeing i think the individuals are you know going to shape the conversation and hopefully that would be for the better because you know if if we do want inclusive governance model we do want you know inclusiveness in the processes that we define so that you know everyone has a, a stake in the future that they are shaping and they are becoming accountable so that would be very interesting to see now the covid-19 crisis we are seeing has indicated many turning points the reversal of the globalization i hope that it's only short term and it's just a pause but we do see the reversal and we are seeing the decline of eu in you know many ways and perhaps the end of you know the united america that we were so used to with the protests that we just saw you know with the black lives matter and what we are seeing with the deeply divided america so there are many change is happening, many turning points. So what are the implications from your perspective of these turning points that we are witnessing, not only for globalization, but for the decline of EU and the decline of the United America and the deep divide that we are witnessing here?
1: I think that's a great question. I think we, again, if we reflect on the pre-COVID scenario, right? The reality is there was a political struggle focused on this crisis of legitimacy. In in many political systems, it wasn't just uh, developing markets. We saw anti-government movements brewing across certain uh, across Europe. We we saw um, uh, corruption anti-corruption movements against certain political leaders in countries like Brazil, South Korea. I think it's safe to say in the last few years, and particularly in two thousand nineteen, tech armed citizens have been empowered to challenge their governments in ways that we've really not seen in the ever before and I think this has really led to a larger debate that has been exacerbated by COVID-19 as to whether our current political systems are really in a position to deliver what we need and it's it's really pointing us in the direction of whether democracy is it still the best system because that's what we assumed in the post-cold war era led by the US uh, that's what we assumed but Clearly, something has shifted. Even if you reflect back Arab Spring onwards, there have been citizen-led movements against policy, political systems, political leaders in, frankly, every part of the world. Something is not working. And I think what we, what we ideally would want to see is that we reflect a little bit more on the social contract, that relationship between citizen and government it's clearly strained and it doesn't matter democratic non-democratic citizens are are frankly quite enraged and it's only been exacerbated by covid 19 i mean maybe there was a brief period when we were i know i was hanging on the word of of our world leaders i was i was desperately watching speeches by you know press conferences hosted by president trump and by boris jo- prime minister uh johnson here hoping that they would get us out of this pandemic sooner but as time has, has gone on, we've we've seen a resurgence in frustration against our governments because of the strategies or lack of strategies that they've used in regards to COVID-19. Um, we've saw we saw protests in the UK, Germany, India, Iraq against the lockdown measures. More recently, there's been a lot of talk about contact tracing uh, policy to to keep track of the virus and how in certain contexts that might infringe on individual rights. Uh, on the other hand, in certain other countries, we've seen leaders use this pandemic as an opportunity to be more autocratic, for instance, in the Philippines and in Hungary uh, and Myanmar. So I think uh, COVID-19 has exacerbated um, this idea of, 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 a, of a political legitimacy crisis, where we as citizens have really uh, recurrently felt that something is not working. And in fact, my students, my grad students and I at NYU every year, we, we do a, a top 10 list of the global risks for the coming year. And we do it in partnership with Wikistrat, which is a crowdsource consultancy. And in January, we released our list and we predicted a global spring, meaning a citizen-led movement in most political systems around the world and there's of course been a delay because of covid-19 but i think as we get as we as the world gets out of the pandemic in the coming months and as we get into 2021 i feel that it's likely we'll see a resurgence in anti-government movement led by citizens and uh, big picture we're going to be having debates about whether political systems as they exist today are really providing the public goods or serving citizens in the way that we expect. And I think um, we might very well see the breakdown of, that, of the social contract. And there'll be a need for more discussions about what we as citizens expect of our governments uh, going forward. Uh, and it, again, I have to go back to the fact that non-state actors have tried to fill the gap in good and bad ways. In some contexts in the US in, in Zimbabwe, Um, and in Nigeria, for instance, we've seen activist billionaires trying to fill the gap left by government by providing medically focused support, (coughs) excuse me, during the pandemic. Um, But we've also seen negative actors try to fill the gap left by government. For instance, in Italy, Afghanistan, you've seen criminal and terrorist groups respectively trying to provide uh, for people where government is falling short. And again, I I, I think we'll we'll be dealing with this identity crisis politically uh, going forward, um, unless there's some visionary who sets who, who kind of tells us what uh, what what we should expect of our governments. And but I
0: just don't see the leadership anywhere, political leadership. Yes, I mean I I hear your point, and that is the whole uh, challenge that you know the models and the processes and systems that we were used to. That those are all you know becoming outdated because of the cyberspace and because of the democratization of innovation and the voice that the social media has allowed to each and every one of us. So yes, everything is going to change, and the, reason, it is a good thing because we will have the inclusiveness of you know many many more people in the governance processes in all other processes that we would you know hope to see because you know for the benefit of the f- protecting the future of the humanity. Because if only few people, or if any one visionary, I don't think any one visionary can shape the entire future of the humanity. We, we need to have more collective, you know, governance processes, irrespective of whether it's a political process or a risk management process. You know, we do need a collective, you know, uh, effort and the, cities, the communities that we are witnessing that are being built on in cyberspace, that is all very welcoming because we are seeing like minded people trying to come together like for instance you know on risk group we are a community of strategic security you know uh, professionals that want to do everything in our power to protect the future of the humanity. So we, we are witnessing many communities like, you know, what we are seeing on risk group. Then there are you know, many communities that are shaping for, you know, open source forum, you know, or crowdsourcing. There are many different communities shaping up. So the purpose behind that is that like-minded people come together to discuss to brainstorm to debate you know where the world should go it is not one individual that is going to define and shape the world it's going to be a collective effort and that is what you know is required because we do need inclusiveness in the processes for the coming tomorrow so Absolutely. as we see in the china for instance if we take an example china has thrived so far on just you know an agreement between uh, the the leadership and the citizens where citizens are largely, you know, politically silent and inactive. They are not uh, part of the conversation. Like, you know, in the, on the contrary, if you see India, everybody is involved in the political process. Everybody has opinion. It is such a dynamic, you know, such a dynamic conversation happening in India, but China is entirely different. And they are under the control of the Communist Party of China. So they are going to go through many changes. It is not only uh, battle between democracy and your know, communism it nice. is also a battle between you know how the leadership you know parties irrespective of the model that we are witnessing you know they are how they are interacting with their citizens what kind of services they provide how they provide how they involve the citizens so lot is going to change so especially if you look at the covid 19 do you see that that is going to threaten the Communist Party of China because of the way they, uh, the how the entire lockdown went into the Wuhan area, and how the citizens were treated. Do you see that some sort of uprising will you know emerge because of that? I, I mean,
1: I, that's a good question in, in regards to China. I think that in recent years there have been you know there has been coverage of how there are sometimes youth led movements that are online uh, about more democratic rights, but it seems as though China has turned a corner. I know there's been an outbreak in Beijing in the last day or two, um, but I think at this stage the the there will more likely be political upheaval in other countries where uh, the pandemic is still you know we 're still debating the specific lockdown policies. There will be concern about whether contact tracing is infringing on people's rights. I think there's more potential for there to be an uprising in, in democratic countries where the expectation of government is perhaps uh, different and there's uh, more opportunity for citizens to to be more vocal about what, what they expect or what they don't expect. Uh, so it'll be interesting to observe, definitely. But in many ways, China has tried to lead the charge in terms of, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, earlier before COVID-19, they talked about being the leader of globalization uh, because U.S. was taking a different role. And uh, post-pandemic for them, they've tried to, to advise uh, on, well, to take a greater role as well, uh, uh, given the gap felt by the U.S., um, uh, as the US has has taken has cut some of its funding to the WHO. So it'll be an interesting dynamic to see but I don't see in the near term that we'll see necessarily a direct uh, challenge to China's leadership. I think it, it would take time uh, before for that to uh, for that to really come about. Uh, but I, I think the larger debate will probably happen in in democratic countries about their expectations of government and whether there's a need to reimagine the social contract. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what how that unfolds. But in terms of just going back to this idea of the frustrated citizen, I think where we should also look for frustration that will cause instability is the citizens who are going to be left behind in a post-COVID-19 economy. Right? I think economically we've known for many years that there's a challenge to globalization. Uh, that's been posed by economic nationalism. Of course, we know about the US-China trade war that that looms large, but now there's a risk of a global depression. And I think there isn't yet, we're not yet really clear about how badly this will affect us in the long run. But I think it's safe to say as individuals uh, within society, there will be more people who feel left behind. Already there were people who felt left behind because of globalization and the related inequality. Already there were people who were impacted by the global youth unemployment crisis of recent years. And we were constantly being reminded by activist tech billionaires that many of us, uh, supposedly 40% of us in the next 15 years would lose our jobs to automation, to robots. And now you have COVID-19. It was encouraging to see these massive relief packages that so many governments have uh, introduced to provide support for the newly unemployed, for uh, for small businesses, that's pos- that's positive. But I think what we'll likely see over time is that there will be more precariats This is a, a, a term coined by Economist Guy Standing to do with a class of people around the world that have been left behind by globalization, and I would argue will now be left behind by COVID-19. They mm-hmm. won't be able to rebound in the way that we would hope and they will perhaps lose this occupational identity or narrative to their lives and the question we have to consider is who's going to take care of all these people this precariat class globally if governments are not able to fall if governments are not able to provide uh, what what they need in the short term or even in the medium term and and I think there needs to be more consideration of the mental health crisis that will arise, the psychological toll that will arise from having more people who are not fitting into the evolving economy uh, in a COVID-19, post COVID-19 context.
0: Yes, and those are very fair questions. And those questions we have been discussing on Risk Roundup uh, for three and almost four, four years now. The question about, you know, the globe, when we went for globalization, when the nations decided to globalize and, you know, take all their manufacturing, you know, to uh, China and make China the manufacturing hub of the world. Most nations did not think about what would happen to all those people who are going to lose jobs. They never, you know, bothered about that. That is why we are witnessing the backlash to globalization. The same way, you know, the automation, AI driven automation that is coming our way, uh, people have started discussing about what to do about that, you know, and uh, when millions are going to lose a job, but that was still a few years away and the COVID-19 happened. So it has accelerated the process. 40 million plus are already out of job. And, you know, because of the COVID-19 now the automation and all those, you know, is going to accelerate. So the, the time that we had to prepare, is no longer there. We have to prepare. Be prepared now. And I do not believe any government is ready for that. But that also, you know, we have to discuss one. Uh, you know, potential is that do we want to just depend on governments to you know be our give us a lifeline? Like you know, decide you know how much uh, do we need every month to uh, you know survive for our family? How much is enough? I don't think we should. De- we cannot just depend on governments for our financial well-being. So that is the reason, you know, we have started a debate about uh, and discussion about that, you know, any data that we create, we should be, you know, able to sell it to whoever uh, you know, is willing to give us so data should be a revenue source same way our dna data should be our revenue source because based on all these data gold mine that is emerging out of our personal habits how we shop how we do things and our data, you know dna uh, these companies are you know making mil- billions of dollars and everyone who is you know sharing their data with this company right now everybody is you know giving it away for free So we do need to be paid for that. So we need to have a conversation about different revenue sources because just depending on governments is never going to be enough. And uh, we have to make sure that we take control in our hands for our future and for our security. Now technology is changing the nature and sources of power. Uh, Nature shift as we have seen is happening in the favor of technology over the years. And uh, that is changing the definition of not only the you know economic power but also the political power so from your assessment what does this mean for international systems and the world order because now the power is not just shifting across the you know, nations the power is shifting also within the nations the com- you know governments are no longer able to define and decide everything the technology companies are playing a major role how what is the impact on the international systems and the world order I, I I really agree
1: with your comments. And, and I think that's also a great question. In my first book, Future World Order, I did talk about how we're seeing the nature of power evolve, right? Because governments, as they lose legitimacy in many parts of the world, the reality is there are other actors that try to fill the gap. And in, in many contexts, it's the tech firm, the non-state actor that seems to have more influence over our lives And I I think that will continue, especially in a COVID-19 world or post-COVID-19 world. And I think um, uh, it's possible that we may need to, and people take issue with me saying this, but in the future, it's possible that we may need to see a more defined role um, for the tech firm or for that activist tech billionaire, given the political system is evolving as we speak. And maybe when we reimagine the social contract, the relationship between citizen and government and the expectations, we need to have these other actors involved as part of the discussion. Yes. Otherwise, it's, we're not really recognizing the, um, the evolving political system. We cannot deny it. Uh, so I think that's an interesting insight that you shared and, and I definitely agree with you. Uh, the very nature of, of power is changing um, going to your point, your point about uh, you know, the data that we offer to, uh, to tech firms, and I, I agree with you that there should be more di- dialogue and hopefully a policy in which we get compensated for the data that we offer these tech firms. And I, I talk about that in my first book, Future World Order, as well, that uh, I was speaking more along the lines of how many of us will lose our jobs to automation. What do we do? and i one of the strategies that i discuss is something that many billionaires have discussed as well that maybe we should have a universal basic income or a basic income for those people who lose their jobs to robots and maybe that basic income could be funded by a tax that's imposed on these on these highly profitable tech firms right because they're going to be the most they're going to be the biggest players uh, they already are in some ways um uh, so I think that would be interesting. And I also did talk about this idea of a data for income swap. And in fact, there, there's, um, there have been some pilot projects, but this was more specific to refugees. How do you create employment for refugees? And there's been, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the company, but there's a startup that has, um, has done this strategy where they, they gave phones to these refugees in a particular Syrian refugee uh, camp, and uh, the, the the data that these refugees inputted in the in the app led to uh, a data for income swaps. So they were compensated by the startup for the data that they were being offered by these refugees. And um, could that be something that could be done on a mass scale? to deal with uh, the uh, the automation-related unemployment and not the COVID-19-related unemployment. Uh, it's definitely a strategy we're going to have to consider, but we can't deny the tech clash, and I think that will continue. That seems to be a growing uh, uh, a growing uh, a risk, this this battle between governments and tech firms, and it's really going to, it re- really depend uh, case to case how particular world leaders are working with these tech firms or challenging them. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But 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 those are definitely interesting ideas that I think we will have to come to terms with. And frankly, we will have to deal with sooner because uh, the unemployment, the wave of unemployment has come sooner than we expected, not because of robots, but because of the virus. Yes. Uh, so that's that's, uh, that's a really good, good point. And again, I have to go back to this idea of who are we going to lean on if governments fall short and there are more precariats people who are lacking in, in, in jobs and are sort of suffering from a mental health crisis, what will happen to them? Could we see uh, tech firms or activist billionaires take a greater role in that regard to provide jobs for, for uh, this sensitive class that's emerging? So we'll have to, we'll, we'll really have to wait and see. And obviously the, the U.S. election could could also be uh, a game changer, right, if there is a change in leadership, although I'm not convinced there will be. It'll be a photo finish. We'll we'll have to wait to the last second to know. But I think even if Biden were to win, a lot of these risks we've talked about are still going to be up in the air. We're not going to necessarily have clarification uh, or uh, a consensus on how to answer these key uh, questions about who's in charge of the world order and whether democracy is still the best system and whether the global economy can withstand the threats to globalization and, and so forth and, and everything else that has come with, with COVID-19. So it'll be an interesting few months and year uh, going into 2021, but quite a start to the 2020s this year. It's, it's sad, frankly,
0: Um,
1: very sad. And, and the last global risk that I talk about in, uh, my book, Future World Order, and the coming sequel, The COVID-19 Effect, has to do with the social risk. And you you mentioned the George Floyd protests earlier. And the reality is, even before COVID-19 struck, there was a significant identity crisis that's, that was brewing in the world. And it really boiled down to this question that many of us have had to answer. Are we globalists or nationalists? Do we care about the other? And I think in most parts of the world, whether it was state actors or non-state actors, hate groups, extremist groups, it seemed as though increasingly we were being pushed into a corner and saying, you know, what do you believe? Where do you stand on this question? Uh, And there are so many examples pre-COVID-19 where hate groups were spreading their uh, negative sentiment Uh, against migrants, against refugee across Europe, Latin America, and also in the U.S., frankly. But we saw it also against religious minorities in Southern Asia, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, India. Uh, The pandemic, let's face it, has deepened these existing societal strains. It's deepened our identity crisis or this crisis of shared global values. And it's created new ones. And I think... uh, I think uh, we can't deny that uh, the COVID-19 has put a spotlight on these identity issues. And we've seen a, a resurgence in, in violence against uh, or a backlash against certain refugee communities. For instance, there was a lot of coverage about the Rohingya refugees in Malaysia. Um, we've also seen a backlash against East Asians globally because of the origins or perceived origins of the virus in China. and and certainly a resurgence in anti-immigrant, xenophobic rhetoric involving uh, certain political parties in Europe. And I I really, I've been asking this for many years, as we've seen extremism has also evolved from uh, Islamist extremism to Hindu extremism to Buddhist extremism to far-right extremism globally. Where is the counter narrative to such hate? Uh, Because it's not a U.S.-led world order and it hasn't been for a while, we've not had a U.S.-led international community promoting global values or shared global values that are positive, that could counter the hate. Only Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, frankly, pre-COVID-19 was talking about how we needed a global campaign against racism. And this was in response to the Christchurch attacks last year. But in a in a in a COVID nineteen world, it's it has been encouraging, and maybe this is the silver lining of the pandemic. That uh, even before the, the George Floyd protests, we saw uh, a few citizen led movements. One that comes to mind is the One Shared World movement for global interdependence. That we should rally around the global pandemic because we had the shared goal uh, or shared value that we want to all live. Uh, Similarly, Global Citizen is a fairly well-known nonprofit that launched uh, a movement called Global Gold, Unite for Our Future. So that was encouraging to see. But then the George Floyd protest struck, and I think nobody would have predicted that there would be protests regarding anti-racism protests in in all 50 states, and now over 40 countries. And again, maybe this is the silver lining that this sad event involving George Floyd happened during the pandemic when we were relatively less distracted and more of us were focused online and saw what happened and how remarkable to see the human spirit that there's a global community of people around the world that despite the risk of the virus are willing to go out on the streets and protest that we all believe in the shared global value of being anti-racist. Of course we have seen there has been a, a, a response from far right extremist groups here in, in the UK, here in London. There was a clash between anti racism protest, protesters and pro racism protesters uh, in the last few days, uh, particularly over the weekend. But I think this could be the silver lining of the pandemic that we see there is a sense of shared global value. Uh, in terms of being anti-racist. And if only we could sustain this sentiment, um, that's what we need to see. Uh, If we can sustain the sentiment and if any world leaders will will piggyback on this sentiment and try to talk about this on a global scale, that will be really encouraging. But I'm not convinced we have the global leadership or the capacity amongst political leaders to really see this through because the more near-term concern is of course, uh, dealing with the health crisis, dealing with uh, the, the economic issue, the economic effect of COVID-19, but definitely the identity issues that we had before, the identity crisis we had before COVID-19 are, have resurfaced in a significant way. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects global stability, domestic stability in various
0: countries, but also global stability. Yes, absolutely. No, I think there is a lot to discuss and there are many more questions that we could, you know, talk about, but we are almost, you know, at the end of our time. So uh, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners? I mean, you did share some information about your books, but if they want to, if any of them are interested in purchasing, where can they, you know, uh, purchase the book and, and yes, want to share any other initiatives uh, with our global viewers and listeners? You know, uh, of course, can- yes.
1: So I... Uh, as i mentioned you know i launched this book future world order back uh it was last april in fact and that i i uh, released a new edition an updated edition for uh, in january at the commonwealth not reala- realizing that by march we would have this major pandemic so i'm i'm so excited to be able to build on this and consider the covid-19 effect on global risks and on these these four significant questions that i've raised involving uh you know global risk and Um, I'm excited to be launching it later in the summer, and it'll be available on Amazon, and I'll be giving 50% of the profits to the WHO. uh, Given, you know, when I read about the U.S. government's decision to cut funding to the WHO, and given that so many people have been so uh, forthcoming with their energy to, 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 to deal with the COVID-19 effect and talk about these issues and be more activists, I thought I also have to do my part. So I'll look forward to giving uh, 50% of the profits to the WHO. We are all in this together. Uh, So uh, we just have to keep uh, keep reflecting, uh, keep uh, discussing these key questions. Who's in charge of the world order? Is democracy still the best system to deliver public goods to us in the coming years? Uh, Can the global economy withstand the threats to globalization, including related unemployment? And lastly, the identity piece. Are we globalists or are we nationalists? Do we care about the other? Right now, it feels like we do care, which is so uh, heartwarming to see. But we need to see how this evolves as we get out of the pandemic, hopefully, God willing, and uh, get into 2021. So hopefully my book COVID-19 effect will be a useful guide for what's coming. And I will offer ideas about, you know, strategies about what we can think about uh, in terms of a better world post COVID-19.
0: Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Aziz, for participating in this round of today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on COVID-19 and world order. And I'm sure our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today. And as a result, this risk-grounded dialogue has been of service, we thank you for that. Thank you so much. Wonderful, thank you so much. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community, and our ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risks to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups. Get involved to protect the future of humanity. Next time, I'm Jayeshit, host of Risk Karnab, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.